Well, greetings in Jesus' name to everyone this morning, and uh, welcome again to the house of God. Welcome to the visitors. God bless you, and I trust you'll be encouraged this morning. Well, it's a good day to seek the Lord, and uh, it's been very good to uh, to be here this morning. Of course, knowing uh, what I was intending to preach here this morning, I was thinking if uh, if you would take to heart what you already sang and what you heard, I wouldn't have to preach. <laughs> but maybe we'll dig a little deeper this morning and see if we can uh, get something for our souls. I'd like to uh, put the title of the message on the board here. The Remedy. We all like remedies, don't we? The remedy for discouragement. Now, discouragement is something all of us deal with. Discouragement is no respecter of persons. It's a feeling that will come upon us from time to time. And so I'd like to just point you to the remedy. There is a remedy for discouragement. And I'm in one sense excited to, uh, to preach this message and in another way um, I was not so excited when the Lord impressed upon my heart that I should preach about it. One of my first thoughts was, oh my, you know, the, uh, the physician should heal himself, right? And I'm not sure that I've always done so well in this matter. So I want to just humbly acknowledge that I need it as much as anyone. And I wish to be a better example. But there is a remedy for discouragement. And I might ask you as you think about this, um, especially when it comes to discouragement, are you sure that you even want a remedy? You know, sometimes we would like to even just push away the thought that there is a remedy because my situation is so bad. Well, the scripture even, I think, would address that a bit. But we do need a remedy for discouragement. It's not God's will for us to live in discouragement. Now, I am not necessarily of the persuasion that discouragement at its first onset is immediately sin. 
And I say that because sometimes, and you've probably heard preachers get up and say that discouragement is sin. Well, I wouldn't necessarily discount that possibility. There is a time when our feelings could pass into sin. And as we look at it this morning, I think we'll, um, we'll maybe be able to discern that a bit. But discouragement comes in all sizes and flavors. We might get discouraged about the, the huge things that look impossible to us, and we look at it and we say, it'll never change. It'll always be that way. It's my lot in life. Or we come pretty close to looking at it that way anyway. And we might be discouraged about things that in the back of our mind we know that in time it will probably pass. All things being equal, it probably will in time, but for now it's, it's quite, quite troublesome and distressing. And we might get discouraged about very little things that are in and of themselves somewhat trivial when you compare them to the bigger picture, but they can be discouraging nevertheless. Discouragement can come upon us suddenly, and it can creep upon us slowly and build up over time. For example, in Nehemiah, you know the story of how they were building the wall that was torn down. They had been in disarray for years, and they were there with enthusiasm. Nehemiah encouraged them to build the wall. He set them here, there, and all along. But as time went on and they labored, it said that the, uh, the uh, strength of the bearers of the burdens was decayed because there was much rubbish. And I think sometimes how much a picture that is of life. We have, we have things to move from point A to point B. And the job is so large it's almost discouraging. But if that weren't bad enough, between point A and point B is such a rough and rugged terrain that our strength and courage just is almost gone because why even try when it's so hard to get from point A to point B? So discouragement comes in all sizes and flavors and for all different kinds of reasons. And there are a number of places we could turn to in the scriptures, but what came to my mind and what I was impressed with is the account of the children of Israel when they were at the, at the border of Canaan. I'd like for you to turn with me to Numbers 13 and 14. That's very interesting, children. If you were listening in the lesson this morning about the quails and the story of Miriam, this comes right after those stories. It's the very next stories. And I'm going to be reading portions of this chapter, and we're going to kind of talk about some things as we go. 
since I think you're familiar with the account, the, the basic account is how they came to the border of the land God wanted to give them. God told them to send in spies. They went in and searched out the land. They came back. And ten of them had a discouraging report. Two of them had a good report. The people did not want to go in. God was displeased with them. He threatened to uh, destroy them all and raise up a new nation under Moses. Moses pled for them, and God hearkened unto that, but he punished them and told them they would be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their uh, disobedience. So that's the basic outline of the story. But let's look at some of the particulars here. Starting in chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I gave, I'm sorry, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Now let's just stop and consider a few things. You know, as uh, Brother David was reading to the children... He was reading about those 70 men, the 70 elders that were chosen to help Moses with his work. And if I'm not mistaken, perhaps these spies were taken from among those 70. In any case, they were rulers among the people. So these were not just men of, of uh, little consequence or that were not... Uh, not well thought of or, or well known. These were prominent men. Men that were leaders. Men that were heads of the children of Israel. And what impressed me is how important it is for us as men. Men who are heads of our families, our churches, whatever it is, whatever God has given us, especially it's important for us to be of courage. So these were heads of the children of Israel. But let's consider the setting here now. This was the promised land. They were at the edge of it. God had promised them this land from generations back. He had promised it all the way back from the days of Abraham onward. They had been miraculously brought out of Egypt, taken through the wilderness, it appears like they just had this experience of the quails and also God's judgment on Miriam. And now it's time to go on to the promised land. And God told Moses to send these men. So, it wasn't just man's idea to go and spy out the land. But it was God. He sent them. He said, send these men to search out the land. 
Now let's ask a few questions. Did God know what they were going to see when they got there? And the answer is yes. They didn't know yet, but God did. And he sent them. Now we know from the fact that he was very displeased with them that it was not God's intent for them to be discouraged by what they saw. In fact, he meant for them to be encouraged. And he gave them opportunity to be encouraged. But God knew ahead of time what they were going to see. And now if we just make an application to our life as we go along here, what lies out ahead, God already knows. He knows what it's going to be. In fact, he knew what you're facing today, where you are, he knew that ahead of time. He knew that from a while back already, what you're facing today and what you'll face tomorrow. Okay, with that in mind, let's see what happened. They went, verse 17, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and said unto them, Get you up this way southward, and go up into the mountain, and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwell therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob as men come to Hamath. So they went, well let's read a few more verses here. And they ascended by the south and came into Hebron where Ahiman and Shishai and Talmai, the children of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes and they buried between two upon a staff. And they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. <clears throat> and you probably have seen pictures in the Bible story books of the men with this cluster of grapes hanging on a pole, one man on each end, bearing it on his shoulder. That was a huge cluster of grapes. The drawings may be somewhat imaginary, but it's trying to put a little reality to what it says here. Verse 24, the place was called the brook Eshcol because of the cluster of grapes with which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. Now, let's think again about the promises God had made. God had told them he's going to bring them into this land. He wanted them to go in. He even told them it's a land which floweth with milk and honey. 
Now it puzzled me a bit. Why did Moses give them instructions to spy out the land and see whether it's good or bad, whether it's uh, fat or lean, or whether the people are big and strong or whether they're small, what kind of cities they dwell in? You know, I'm not sure why all that was, but in any case, they were supposed to search it out and discover what, it, what was there. Well, verse 26, And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran, to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. Amen. That's just what God had said. He'd said it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwelled in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwelled in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwelt by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Wow, this is, this is getting really bad. Now again, let's consider the setting and the response. There were two men who said this is a good land. We are well able to go up. They looked at the fruit and all the good things of the land, but the ten that were discouraged and were discouraging the people, they saw the giants. They saw the, yeah, the difficulty. They saw these that were stronger than they were. They saw the cities that were very well fortified. Now question again. Did they all see the same thing? And the answer is yes. They all saw the same thing. Caleb and Joshua didn't deny that there were giants in the land. They just said we are well able to go up. So we're beginning to see that a lot of the difference lay in the heart of the men. And we could say maybe by extension their perception 
of what was, what was real, and even their worldview. We talked about that a bit. What is your worldview? How do you see life? What do you see in life? It does make a difference. There we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And we're going to stop in this account a bit and fast forward a few hundred years and think about David and Goliath. There are some great similarities here because these hundreds of years later they were in the land and they were seeking to conquer the land. They had, you know, established the kingdom there. They'd been there for hundreds of years under the judges and then uh, there was King Saul and it seemed like Israel was growing and prospering. But the Philistines came up, and they had among them a giant. And this was Goliath of Gath. And as we look at that account there in Kings about David going up against Goliath, and we know the story well, so I'm just going to refer to it and, and make some comments on it. But giants were no little thing. If you think, if, if Goliath were standing here, I think he would, he would stand somewhere with his head up about the top of that blackboard. So, if I'm of average or maybe slightly below average height, but I'm not sure if I could even look at his belt. I mean, you know, it would be up here. And the Bible tells us a bit about his armor and the things he had. And, and I don't know if you've ever studied this or thought about it, but it tells us that the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. And I've calculated that as approximately 20 pounds. Now the best thing we can use to visualize that is a sledgehammer. In our common usage, a sledgehammer that would be considered large is about, what, 10 or 12 pounds, maybe a 12-pound hammer. A strong man can take that thing and he can beat up rocks. I mean, you know, he gets a good swing in that and it would smash a rock and you wouldn't want to get in the way. But now think of this thing as slightly bigger. It's 20 pounds, not just 12, it's 20. And it's really sharp on one end. And then it's on the end of a big pole, like a weaver's beam, it says. And then you have a man big enough to just take that thing and throw it somewhere. This was a real giant. And it was no laughing matter. When he came out and said, send me a man to fight. This is no little thing. 
I mean, really? I mean, that spear, you think about a sledgehammer. If that thing just falls on you, you're done. Let alone it, you know, coming with some speed. I mean, if that thing hits you, you're done. I mean, done. You're not going to have a second chance. So now we're talking about issues that are so big, they're beyond our ability to even handle. They're, they're just, this is not ordinary. This is beyond, beyond all reason, we, we say. But again, along comes David, who is, by all accounts, seems to be of maybe smaller stature, smaller than his brothers, probably at least below average in size. Certainly because of his youth, he was maybe not yet fully mature even, but at best of smaller stature. But he came with a different mindset. He Again, he had something, he saw something that enabled him to go against this giant. But now let's just come back to our story here in Numbers 13 and 14 and understand that when they saw these giants, the sons of Anak, they were real. This was not just... uh, This was not going to be easily overcome. Now let's think back to what this is illustrating. This is illustrating difficulties and trials in our life, circumstances that discourage us. And you know, sometimes Just a few words, a few nice words are not going to cut it. We, if somebody says to you, well, just, just smile and go for it. It'll be all right. Well, really? How far is a smile going to go when you're up against a giant? You probably won't, won't be dissuaded. And we might be telling ourselves, it's a little bit of maybe humorous, tongue-in-cheek, you've probably heard it. Somebody said, well, they told me I should just cheer up, things would get better. Or things could be worse, things could be worse, just cheer up. And so I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse. You know, just that, poor me, I, no matter what I do, I'm not going to make it. Well, in this case, especially for the children of Israel, it's going to take more than just a few nice words. It's going to take more than just cheer up. Things could be worse. I mean, when you're facing a giant, I mean, how much worse can it get? It's, it's not going to cut it to just tell ourselves a few nice things. However, good words are important, but there needs to be something a little deeper behind it. 
Let's read here in the next chapter, chapter 14. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Let's stop there and consider, was this a reasonable option? I mean, if you think about what they suffered in Egypt, the answer is no, it's not a reasonable option. But somehow, in the extremity of the moment, it almost seemed like it must be better to go back. But if we also put together what we can learn from reading the account up to this point, in some of their complainings and murmurings in the wilderness, it tells us that in their hearts they turn back to Egypt. And again, you have a, an issue going on in the heart. Verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, and their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Now, Joshua and Caleb here spoke good words, and we're going to look in detail at some of the things they said. It would have been so much better if the people had believed them. It was God's will for them to believe that report, what Joshua and Caleb said. But what was their response they said, let's just stone them. I don't want a remedy for my discouragement. It isn't going to get any better. At least I don't want your remedy. This is more than we can bear. And those kind of thoughts are going through their mind. They don't even want to consider the encouraging words and the and the, the true application of, um, of what God wanted them to see. Well, we have then the account of how the Lord wanted to just uh, get rid of them all. And Moses pled for them, and, and the Lord 
heard him and seemed like he turned away his anger for a moment there. Verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, where does that fit into this whole account? As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Is that what God had in mind from the very start in bringing them into the land? Yes, it is. In fact, though God knew exactly what they were going to see before, they, before the spies ever went into the land, God had promised that he's going to bring them in. He wanted them to believe that promise regardless of what was there and what they saw and how impossible it was for them to do this on their own because he wanted to demonstrate his glory. And 40 years later, God did demonstrate his glory. He brought the children of Israel in on dry land. They walked across the Jordan River because it was parted. And they came up to the city of Jericho. And it tells us that the city of Jericho was straightly shut up because the inhabitants thereof trembled. They were afraid of this army of people and their God because... The reports of what God had done had come long before these people came into the land. And so God was intending to show his glory from the very start. And they should have believed him at the first go around and entered into the land. And God would have dealt with the giants just as he did later. But let's note what Joshua and Caleb said, verse 8, If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land. Now I believe there is a key, a big key. We're going we're to emphasize, if the Lord delight in us, what, what does that word delight mean? Well, we, we understand it. And the question is, did the Lord delight in them? That word delight means have a strong affection for. Did God have a strong affection for them? And we know yes. It's repeated many times in the scriptures. The Lord had delight in them. He had a strong affection for them. His feelings were for them. It's one reason why he was so disappointed when they didn't believe him. Because he did delight in them. And somehow Joshua and Caleb sensed that. It was part of their worldview. They said, if the Lord delight in us, and I don't think they were doubting that he did. He, if he delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us. 
And in the end of verse 9, and the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Fear them not. Those are going to be some of the key phrases. Now, let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. And I believe this setting here in chapter 1 is now 40 years later. They've had their wanderings in the wilderness. And Moses is recounting the story. He's explaining how it was. Deuteronomy 1.1 1, 1, These be the words which Moses spake unto all, the, all Israel on this side Jordan in the wilderness in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazeroth and Dizbah. And in verse 3, And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, and the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. And now let's go farther down the chapter. In verse 19, and when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which he saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said unto you, Ye are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. And the Lord God of thy fathers hath said unto thee, Fear not neither be discouraged. And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went up into the mountain, and came unto the valley of Eshcol, and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God doth give us. Notwithstanding ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And ye murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we saw the sons of the Anakims there. Then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goeth before you, he shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness. For thou hast seen how that the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son in all the way that ye went until ye came into this place. 
Yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you, to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night, to show you by what way ye should go, and in a cloud by day. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and swear, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land, which I swear to give unto your fathers, save, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Also the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither. But Joshua the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And we'll stop reading there. But Moses is retelling this story now. And there's a few details I'd like to pick up on. In verse 27, Moses tells them that they murmured in their tents and said, Because the Lord hated us. Do you see how contrasting that is to what Caleb and Joshua said? When they tried to encourage the people and said, If the Lord delight in us. But here the people rebelled and they said, No, the Lord hated us. And I think that is a key in our world view, if you will, that makes the dividing line between sinking in discouragement and actually taking hold by faith and following what the Lord says. It's not so much the circumstances that we face, because if we look at what they were facing, Without a doubt, it was more than they could handle. In, in just the purely natural and physical um, For example, if you look, take the words of Jesus when he talks about following him, and a man that wants to follow him should sit down and count the cost, lest he uh, be like the man who began to build a tower, and, and then he ran out of money and wasn't able to finish. Well, if they would have just stuck with that kind of reckoning, they would have said and concluded, we can't do this. There's no way we can win against these giants. They're too big for us. But Joshua and Caleb knew, or somehow in their heart, they laid hold of the promise of God. And God had said He's going to bring them in. And if the Lord promises that He'll do it, then surely He'll perform it. Shall He bring to the... I say, shall He bring to the birth and not, not bring forth? Or if the Lord brought you up to this land and promised to give it to you, won't He do it? Well, yes, He will do it. And somehow, Caleb and Joshua had it settled in their hearts 
that God was looking at them favorably. And the other people said, no, God hates us. So you see, it didn't have so much to do with the actual problem, the giants, if you will. And it wasn't that the giants just disappeared as soon as Caleb and Joshua said, well, the Lord is with us. They still had a long, hard road to go, even if they believed the Lord and, and did, his, you know, did His will. God knew all that, but He was calling them to faith and to believing and have it settled in their hearts that God is for me. God is not against me. God is for me. God is looking favorably at me. But so often we're tempted to wrestle with this and begin to murmur and think, well, did God forget me? My situation is so much worse than what others have. Why is my way so hard? Maybe it's somebody did this to me. Maybe we look at it and say, this is just too big. There is just no way. But what is our view of God? I believe at the foundation, at least, of where, where we're going to win the battle or not in discouragement is we're going to have to see God for who He is and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge and to have it settle in our hearts that God is for me. God is not against me. He knew long before I got there what I'm going to face. And he didn't intend that when I get to this point in life that now it's fine for me to complain. That now is the time to fold up and go home. Now is the time to say, I'm done. No, that's not what God had in mind. He had in mind to bring you through. He had in mind for you at that moment to pick up and say, God is for me. I will go by His strength. I will go forth in His strength. I will seek to do His will in whatever circumstance I find myself. If we go to the New Testament, which let's do that now. Hebrews chapter 4. Well, actually, the last, the tail end of chapter 3. In verse 18, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So God called it unbelief. 
we might look at it and we say, well, the people were discouraged. And that's, that's true. They were discouraged. And in their discouragements, they allowed unbelief. You see, I don't think we can... Um, we, we all have emotions, we have feelings, and, and these feelings of discouragement and distress do set in. Things didn't turn out the way we had hoped they would. We thought God had promised something and we've prayed for it, we've prayed for it, and we've prayed for it, and it hasn't come yet. it's normal for us to begin to be discouraged. When the burden and the load is heavy, the work is hard, and there's much rubbish, our strength begins to falter. The bears of the burden, their strength was decayed because of the rubbish. It, it just finally kind of goes away. So what I'm encouraging you here with is not that you whip yourself up with some good words, though it is important to tell us, tell ourselves the right things. But it has to be much deeper than just, oh, put on a smile, you know, feel better, things could be worse, you know. But there has to be somewhere in our heart a settled Assurance that God is for us. He's not against us. And when we have that, that's what the Bible calls believing. We believe God. So what is the remedy for discouragement? I will just put it down here as faith. Faith that lays hold of the promise of God. And we could put several sub-points under that. Several that I mentioned already is, is that settled assurance in our heart that God loves us. God is for us. God doesn't hate you. Even at the point when they came to the to the um, to the promised land, if I'm not mistaken here, by God's count, they had provoked him ten times. And still God loved them. Still God was for them. Still God was going to fulfill his promise. Still he was going to fight the giants for them, even though they had provoked him ten times. But there came a point when God said, Okay, you have transgressed. This is unbelief. I must do something about it. And he... He swore unto them that they would not enter into his rest. So maybe you've 
really messed up in this discouragement. You've not sought God. You've, you've just looked at the dark side of it. You can't see any way out. Or maybe you've been up and down. You've had days and, and issues that you seized a hold of it by faith and saw God answer prayer and then over here there's this other thing that just doesn't, I, I just can't, can't see it. Maybe you've messed up nine times, but God is still for you. God still loves you and he's asking you again by faith, will you Will you follow me by faith? Will you lay hold of the promise? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And then he goes on to talk about that rest that we can find in Jesus. And this is all in the context, in the, and we could go back in chapter 3 and what led up to it. He was, he was telling them that they should not harden their hearts, that they should take courage. Verse 10 of chapter 3, Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts, they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And then he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Lest an evil heart of unbelief in departing. Remember I mentioned about it coming upon you slowly. And with the process of time, when the burden gets heavy, you don't see the answer. Things begin to stack up. And there's a danger for us to begin letting our heart to drift into unbelief. And it's the step of departing from the living God. So when does discouragement begin to cross that line into unbelief? Well, I'm not sure that we can say precisely where. Let's just get rid of it quick. Let's not let it grip our heart and take us into unbelief. But nip it when it's little. And begin to recount the promises of God and say, God is with us. God is for me. If the Lord delight in me, and he does, then surely he'll bring me through. God doesn't hate us. God didn't bring this circumstance just to make your life miserable. No, that's not how God operates. He, he is looking out for us, and he will carry us through. Let's lay hold of the promise.
The remedy for discouragement is faith. Not just in a trite little soundbite, but in reality, laying hold by faith. May God bless you with that.